0: Hi, everyone, welcome to Steps Audio channel, we are very excited to share our content from Steps events to learn all about the latest trends in startups, digital media, fintech, future tech and wellness in emerging markets. You can find us on Anagami, Spotify and Apple podcasts, make sure to subscribe to your favorite channel and we hope you enjoy the content.
1: So guys, we're going to talk about um, corporate governance and the importance of corporate governance in startup companies today. And um, this is a topic which uh, I think a lot of founders these days are very conscious of and cognizant of, um, and of course anybody who's out there raising certainly institutional capital is always going to be required by their investors to have solid corporate governance and a good framework for decision-making and a good framework for accountability. And I think you know there are a couple of themes that I want to home in on today. We've got a very experienced panel here. Saraya is a lawyer like me. Don't hold that against her or, or against me. Rawan is uh, a founder who uh, has founded a, a great company and is actually, uh, I think, seeing a lot of interest and traction from investors in the market. And the business that she's doing has a lot of um, direct relevance and concern to the concept and uh, the topic of governance. I'll let Rawan talk a little bit about what she's doing in a second. Uh, GV is representing Sequoia Capital in the Middle East region, uh, and he's been here for about a year, year and a half. Is that right, GV? Almost two now. Almost two. Um, Sequoia, obviously a big event when Sequoia made their first investment in the Middle East uh, about a year and a half or so ago, and it's very nice to have you with us. And finally, but not least, Ryan, who's visiting from Riyadh and who is a partner at BIM Ventures. Do you guys just very quickly want to say a little bit about Yourself and how corporate governance is kind of relevant to what you do. Soraya?
2: So, my name is Soraya, and I'm the managing partner of Legal Circle. Essentially, we help startups in the early stages and seed all the way through to exit um, on all things legal. And so, one of the things we do advise often on is about um, setting up the board and what that needs to look like in the early stages, and then how that Develops, And I think the key thing, and maybe what will come out of the discussion today, is it doesn't look the same at all the stages. Um, And maybe we'll explore that as well in our discussion about how it looks early on compared to how it looks a little bit later. And, you know, what are the key considerations you need to make when you're setting up a board and the corporate governance? Yeah.
1: Thanks, Raya. Rowan, do you want to tell us a little bit about what you do?
0: This is working, okay. Um, Co-founder of Zest Equity, we're a venture transacting platform plus liquidity platform. We're trying to enable or empower founders, companies, VCs to access secondary liquidity pre-exit, pre-IPO. Um, and actually, when we started this, me and my co-founder about a year ago, it took us about six months to build in the right structure governance, especially because we empower a lot of these transactions through, uh, through legal infrastructure and through vehicles based out of different jurisdictions. So for us, kind of corporate governance was there on day one. We don't have a board at the moment. We're still early stage, but governance has been part of our DNA. Um, and previous to this, I also ran a bank in the DIFC or, or investment bank. And and for us, I mean, managing boards cross-border between group and the intricacies of how do you deal with kind of these group level structures, a- executive committees, advisory committees, and generally uh, corporate governance and how important it is to manage larger institutions.
1: Thanks, Rowan. And and GV, obviously, you, you represent, you know, a deeply established and long-standing kind of institutional investor with global insights and experience. And I think you've served on quite a few boards yourself. It'd be great to hear from you in terms of your sort of... Uh, you know, what, what is your experience of, uh, of governance and how do you see it?
3: Yeah, first, uh, thanks for having me here. And uh, just as an introduction, I represent the India Southeast Asia and now Middle East business at Sequoia. Um, you know, when it comes to governance, the first question is, look, when people raise money, you're dealing with other people's money, right? Whether it's investors investing on behalf of LPs or founders raising capital for their businesses. First question is, you are now responsible because you're taking somebody's money. It's not just you or your family's uh, capital which means you have a responsibility to kind of deal with it in fair ways and in a way that, uh, you know, protects the minority shareholders and shareholders that have, you know, helped you with capital. So first question is, you know, corporate governance, or at least first thing in my mind is corporate governance by a lot of startups is seen as overhead, right? Why do we need to do this? I just should be playing offense. Let me go win business, et cetera. But you know, we kind of try to, uh, educate our founders saying, look, while, while you're playing offense, you can have someone else in the team playing defense and you know doing the right thing for your shareholders and so this is something at least from a philosophical level you've got to imbibe fairly early on in the process. It doesn't mean you need all the committees and you need the full boards et cetera uh, you know uh, initially, but you at least need to have the checks and balances in the form of a strong finance team, which is just at least looking at what you need to do and and protecting you not just. You know from potentially some employees who may be doing things that are not uh in the benefit of shareholders sometimes protecting the shareholders from founders or people in in his or her ecosystem that may also not be doing things the fair way right it's not to say you know people are doing the wrong things but they may not be aware of what are the right things to do and what's the best practice when you do things so uh i'd like to think of it as not as overhead but as an integral part of how you build something to protect shareholder interests in the long term
1: thanks V and and ryan you obviously come at investing from The really early stage BIM is a venture builder uh, venture studio as I understand Mm. it and obviously you're looking at companies when they're very very early stages of their infancy and as they're just beginning to think about launching and commercializing and so on when you come in at that early stage do you have a different perspective on on governance to what GV just mentioned or do you see it the same way
4: I think uh, first uh, as a venture builder uh, we invest and build with, uh, with the founders, uh, at a, as you said, as a ve- at a very early stage. We're talking about the prototype and the, the idea stage and taking it, go, uh, moving forward to market and scale up stage. Uh, we, we believe, we are huge believers in corporate governance. Yes, uh, I agree that what no matter what stage the startup, uh, at, especially in the beginning, they should have some sort of a governance structure, uh, corporate uh, governance structure uh, in place but uh, what's the purpose of having that corporate uh, structure or governance structure the board is always there to support the founders not the other way around so it's the founder when he ha- he built his board the board role is to support him not to just question and monitor his progress uh, it should have a very agile structure in the beginning we're talking about the pre-seed stage the board can be just a whatsapp group literally so, uh, and uh, we are huge believers in supporting the founders by having that board and the role of the board. If we talked about the persona, let's talk about persona of uh, the members of that board. There is the believer, there is the challenger, there is the supporter, and also, uh, the well-connected, sorry, the, uh, who has a great network. And also, there is this guy who is the sailor, who will just stay there, and make sure that the business model is being uh, moving accordingly to that plan. A lot of uh, general mistakes, and I don't want to tap into that deeply, but I just want to touch it uh, briefly. The advisors or the subject matter experts, not necessarily they should be on that board. They can just have an advisory board on the side that contain those advisors who will be supporting through advice uh, a subject matter expert to the founder.
1: Yeah, that's a really interesting uh, topic, actually, this question of advisory boards. And I know as we've been having our kind of -uh, pre-panel prep, everybody's mentioned it in some form Mm. or another. I mean, you know, once you raise institutional capital, and I think to to the point that that GV was making around accountability to your shareholders and making sure that you're protecting the interests Mm. of your shareholders, you know, boards, once they've raised institutional equity, once they've got a Series A, under their belt, or even a series seed under their belt, they've got a board with institutional members on. Obviously, part of that uh, function of that board is to make sure that decisions are being made, you know, according to the shareholder agreement that's been negotiated, making sure that, you know, there are checks and balances. But a lot of founders, you know, when I work with founders as a lawyer, a lot of them say similar thing to what you just said, actually, Leanne, Mm -hmm. which is, you know, I want the board to support me, whereas I kind of feel like I'm spending most of my time reporting to a board. And in fact, I had a client who now has exited her company after a Series C, so quite a mature company, a while back. Um, By the time she got to her exit, she was so tired of dealing with her board that she felt like she was an employee in her own company because she'd been diluted three times and kind of got to that point where it started to feel like she was reporting to like a, not just a boss but like a group of bosses and it was exhausting so this advisory board concept i'm interested so you implement this with your companies at yes. an early
3: stage yeah
1: i'm interested from from all of you guys uh, in terms of the experience that you've seen with companies that are maybe a little bit more mature how often do you see that where the advisory board or XCOM or something along those lines is used to give day-to-day advice, maybe to a founder on decision-making, and the board really is about kind of accountability and checks and balances. Do you see that a lot, G.V.?
3: Uh, we see that often, um, but uh, you know, really the question is: Look, you you then have two sets of people that you've got to manage, and and uh, um, you know, and a founder has only so much time, and already they're feeling very overwhelmed. Um, so that that's the one question. So what I've seen, uh, uh, you know, advisory committees have been very helpful if it's a very deeply technical kind of a company. So if you're in biosciences, then you want the right kind of people, et cetera. There's real research IP, then you find people who you are, you know, working with on the problem. They're helping you advance your thought process on the problem of making connections. But if you construct a good board, you could probably have a mix of both types of people, to his point around supporters and people that challenge you and so on. You can have those people, and then you can have a set of people who are really focused on governance as the mainstream, you know, value that they bring in. Typically, these would be people from accounting firms, or who could be chairman of your audit committees, and so on and so forth. That at some stage, those kinds of people, while again the founder may find it to be an overhead because it feels like not fun, but these are important for for them to not uh, you know do the wrong things. And I think of governance in the bucket of saying there are acts of omission and acts of commission, right? The acts of omission are when you didn't know about something, and you know you're kind of the board is helping you be on the right track. And then if the founder you know does things that are you know, not supposed to be done, acts of commission, then the board can do very little about it because the board will only be able to react to the set of, you know, the, the data or the set of conversations that are being brought to the board. The board is not going to come and run your company or know what's going on inside. So it really comes down to saying is the founder first bought into the concept of being a well-governed business? And if they are, then the board is helping you stay on track to your point around shareholder agreements, minority protection rights, and so on and so forth. And then kind of guarding them from, these acts of omission that can happen once in a while.
1: Yeah. Soraya, you, you work with a lot of startups uh, and founders, in, again, in the very early stages. When they get to that point of taking institutional capital and they're thinking about the board that isn't just the board made up of the three co-founders, which, some, you know, which we see quite a lot, yeah. um, what, what is the biggest kind of debate and pressure point and, or friction point in the discussion between founders and institutional investors in your experience?
2: Yeah, well, it's generally, I mean, at the end of the day, when the investor comes in, they always want to see on the board, you know, particularly where the ticket sizes are big, and they want to be steering that ship and sort of making sure that there are all those checks and balances. Um, And usually, the the founders, because generally, when we're moving to the early stage, to the later stages, the founders are on that board. And they really, there's that friction between how much control do I give? Do I get off the board? Do I stay on this board? Um, And, you know, what are the questions going to be like? I mean, you said it earlier yourself about one of the founders by the end of it just got so sick and tired of it, and she felt like she was being policed rather than, you know, being supported by the board, which is the function of the board. Um, and so there's always that. It's about how do we provide a, how do we find a healthy balance um, and a balanced perspective on the board? So you've got people that are in it to and have a really vested interest, um, and then of course, you know, the VCs or um, other institutional investors that come on and and you know essentially they've paid for it they want that seat and they're going to steer the ship and it's always about finding that that right balance which is difficult you know difficult conversation to have but it has to um you know inevitably has to happen and i think that startups uh, do need to turn their mind and realize at some point when there's institutional money the game is going to change i mean they need to be ready for it and so this is part of what we need to prepare them for that It is now changing the game. The rules are going to change a little bit and these are the checks and balances. And you just you have to be fit enough to take it. But as well, then stand their ground to see, you know, how do we set up a framework to make it conducive so there's always that open communication and it's not a case of being policed, but rather we're in this for a collect and there's a collective goal of down the line having a really good price round or a fantastic valuation for our company where everybody has to gain from it.
1: I mean, having solid governance is actually it's part of the building blocks of actually being able to get a decent round down the line, right? Well, that's because, exactly yeah. right.
2: Exactly. All of that. So it's it's about, you know, hoping for the best and planning for the worst. But it's about today, where do we want to see? Start with the end in mind and work backwards. This is what we're trying to achieve. These are the people's skills set. This is what I'm good at. This is what you're good at. This is what you're bringing to the table. Now, how do we leverage off the skills and knowledge that we have and bring that to the table to make sure that we're in the best competitive advantage we can be?
1: Yeah. And, and look, I mean, I think when we're talking about governance, obviously we can talk about the technicality of governance, meaning company, a board, who sits on the board, what decision-making rights people have. But actually fundamentally at the heart of it, the, the spirit of good governance is around the kind of um, the concepts or the values of transparency, accountability, Absolutely. you know, honesty, good ethical behavior. And I think something that we were, the one you and I were talking about is, and, and you see a lot of companies obviously in, through your platform, you know, it's not just accountability and transparency that happens between management and board members. And of course that's important. But that founders and management teams actually have a, a responsibility to imbue the kind of values of transparency and confidentiality. And... Confidentiality, and um, Transparency and
2: fiduciary obligations. To the yes, company, yes,
1: you know uh, accountability throughout the company. So, can you talk a little bit about some of the companies that you've seen, good and bad, without naming names? Obviously, in terms of how people put you know that at the heart of what they do in their business ethics. Uh,
0: and I mean, I don't. One thing that I am noticing is when you have a founder who understands exactly why I mean why corporate governance is important. He actually lives it. He, he sees the impact today and long term. He's a lot more, or she's a lot more likely to actually trickle that culture down to the to to the company, and I feel that founders who understand that very early on, who start implementing the fundamentals very early on, end up building a very solid governance structure that's not just coming from top, not just coming because the board is asking for one, two, three, but but that they're they're embracing it, they're actually being proactive about it, and you feel like these companies end up being a lot better run, they end up being a lot more sustainable in how they grow, and then when they enter that very crazy stage of of now I'm, I'm from zero to one all the way up to the CD, they're going very fast. It becomes very easy to transition into these more stringent checks and balances because it's already kind of built in. And, and talking to different founders, different companies at different stages, you, you can start to really tell the difference between who's just listening to a set of rule versus who lives it, who understands it, and who really, I mean, embraces it across the whole, uh, the whole structure. Um, and for us, one of one of my main D.D.s is when I'm talking to someone and I really see that governance in place, I trust the company better. I'd be more likely to invest. Uh, yeah. So I think it's extremely important. And I think it's, it's both the board and the founders together in the early stage. That first relationship that you build is extremely important. Your first investor should actually treat you like a partner. There should be engagement, transparency from day one. Because if you have that good relationship with your first board, the transition should be also a lot yeah. more smooth.
1: Yeah, I mean, funnily enough, you know, in my, in my job as, as, a, as a law firm partner, I represent venture capital firms, mostly venture capital firms, putting capital into, into early stage and growth stage companies, or founders usually at growth stages. And of course, on the MA side with strategics. And, and I mean, in every single successful transaction, whether it's a capital raising or an M&A, the quality of information, the openness of information the comprehensiveness of disclosure around any issues is the difference between success or failure. And I remember three years ago now, a company that had two very large institutional investors, Global, one of whom might be represented on the stage, were sitting in a data room looking at a Series C round. And because of a few minor issues in terms of the transparency of the company information, those investors pulled out and actually the company died because it ran out of capital, thinking it was gonna raise capital from two of the world's biggest VCs. And that's absolutely critical. So now you know, when a founder comes to me and says, I'm getting ready for a C round, what should I do? You know, What I typically say to them is, imagine that you're about to do an IPO. You know, imagine that you are going public and you need to put every single piece of information that you have in a, in a way that tells the story of your company in a very transparent way, and where you've thought about every single issue that you have. And so somebody should come and look at you as if they were an external investor and stress test every single issue that you've got and help you formulate answers so that you can be transparent and candid. There was you know, somebody when I was much younger said to me, an architect actually, I have a strategy for dealing with really awful, ugly architectural features which is that I paint them bright red. And I think, you know, and this is wearing my investor hat now. When a founder comes and says, I'm raising capital, and I have this problem that I want to solve, problem in the company. If they're transparent about it, tell you that it's there, tell you that they've identified it, identified a, a strategy for solving it, even if they haven't solved it yet, that for me is always an incredibly convincing uh, degree of transparency that make me th- will make me think, yeah, I'll invest in this company because of the transparency and the candidness of the founder.
3: Actually, it's a, it's an interesting point that you mentioned it right? because one way to build trust is by talking about the bad news first. And sometimes, you know, founders tend to think like, well, oh, this is something I can deal with. I don't have to really, you know, complicate the situation, let the ground close and I'll deal with it. Unfortunately, if it's found in diligence and it's not been told before, then people will probably like it to walk away. Much, much better if you can come and talk about all the things that are to be fixed. And say you have a plan, then kind of try to hope that it's not going to be found out.
1: Yeah. Can, can any of you guys think of an example of a, a client, a company that you've looked at that's been in a difficult spot and where the board has either made a positive difference or a negative difference in the outcome without naming any names? <laughs> Rayan, you've, you've got some companies that yeah. have actually been spun off and, and got you know, reasonably, yeah. reasonably big.
4: I'm thinking about bringing up a good example. Uh, I think uh, I'll give you a bad example. Uh, we have uh, looked into, that, uh, into a company, and uh, we found that the board is acting for the best interest of the investors instead of the founder and the founding team. And it was uh, in the early stage, we're talking about pre-series A stage and, uh, and before. When we changed the board, and we shifted the board uh, completely, the mindset of the board members, they, be- they came in with the behavior of we are here for the investors and we're here for the founder and the team and the, how to fix this company and take it moving forward into uh, certain stages. Uh, across a sample of 18 companies, uh, we found that in terms of growth, the highest performing companies, they had a corporate governance structure in place. We're we're not talking, we're, we're talking here about the what and the how. The what, there is a corporate governance. The how, every stage has its own how in terms of uh, how complicated is the structure itself uh, the conduct of that uh, official meetings or whatever and uh, yeah that's a very bad uh, when you think about it the, the whole purpose of having a corporate governance in place is to take a company from this stage to another and better stage I was
1: going to say, sorry, yeah, do you want yeah, to say something about fiduciary
2: was, duties? Yeah, um, exactly. So the board owes a fiduciary duty to the company to be doing and making decisions to act in the best interest of it. And exactly. Taking it from point A to point B. Um, and some of the, you know, b- given that we work with the early stages, one of the most difficult things I see is where there's founders that are sitting on the board and they find it very hard. And they're obviously also shareholders of the company and they find it very hard to keep arm's length. So similar to what you're saying. So it isn't until they get into those later stages where they start to bring in some fresh blood or people that have got industry experience or knowledge or know-how and they're a little bit separate and away from the, you know, the company and, and the running and the day-to-days and they can bring in that sort of more insight and a bit more of an objective opinion. But generally, in the very early stages, the most typical thing is that you've got the founders on the board and they're making the decisions and they're running and they want to be agile and nimble and we get it, right? And, and that's very common and okay. But it's, it's, you know, the whole objective is how do we, how do we take it from A to B? And that's what the board is there for. And so at some point, you need to trust to let go, maybe to make that conscious decision that I'm not fit for the board. I should be my position should be running the company as the CEO, not being on the board, perhaps yes, you know being a shareholder, but then keeping that arm 's length away and then of course taking heed of what their advice is and understanding that they 're there and their obligation is as a must to make sure that they 're um, acting in the best interest of the company. Um, and so I think that's where, you know, you said, Do you have an example of a bad one? I don't have the most examples, of, uh, best examples of where it was amazing, but I've got where I can see. And we have to say to founders, look, there's a point where you need to make that conscious decision of stepping away from being on that board now, because you're wearing two hats and it's difficult to keep that balance.
1: So coming back to, I mean, we're in the world of startups and perhaps earlier stage companies here. Obviously, mature companies, publicly listed companies typically will have, non-executive, non-connected board members. And you know, again, in the companies that we've invested in as Dubai Angel Investors, we always like to see boards that have at least one member that has industry vertical experience, domain expertise, that's not connected to the investment or the company. How practical is that in early stage companies? And do you have to find a way of remunerating non-executives? And in fact, is that a good idea?
3: Yeah, we, we've we seen some of those. But first, it's hard to do. And the reason it's hard to do is, uh, you know, really good people don't want to come until they feel like the full governance structure is ready because they don't want to take the downside of their brand uh, being lent to a young company and things not working out. Um, and, and so you have to figure out people that may be interested kind of giving back in a way and then have some interest in mentoring companies and so on. So that set is typically not a large set. Second is increasingly, you know, uh, responsibility of board members and what they're liable for has just gotten tighter and tighter across the world, which means, you know, there's just so much more downside to being on the board. And hence, going back to the advisory board condition, lots of people are willing to be on the advisory board, not on the board, right? And and that's, that's an issue we've got to deal with. So you will have to then go to people who think of some upside from being remunerated from these situations. Uh, not the best kind of board member uh, to start with, but you have no choice but to do that. And so combination of uh, some kind of a fee for participating and giving time and some upside from options, et cetera, is, is kind of becoming more common. Uh, but, I, but I do think there is a problem because you don't have enough supply of experienced people who can really yeah. guide companies.
1: And just uh, going, I want to go back to the room, actually, for those of you founders in the room, do it, how many of you have somebody who's an, a non-connected, non-executive, domain expert, board member in your companies? One, two, three, four, five, six. So a few. That's great. Um, And how many of you feel that your board acts more as a um, a catalyst and a supporter of your business than a drag? That's an honest answer. Yeah, and it's good to be sitting at the front because then the board members who are sitting at the back can't see you. <laughs> So look, I mean, I'm, we've got a couple of minutes and I, I, I do want to close with, uh, given that we have a room with quite a lot of founders, with, with a piece of advice for you. And, you know, again, I'll open it up to the floor and see if anybody has any concluding remarks on this. But um, I see a lot of companies, particularly in today's market, today's market is really significantly different to what it was a year ago. And... Companies that may be raised in 2021, you know, at a really high valuation and are coming to the end of that, you know, runway of whatever round it was that they closed, are getting to situations now where they might not have achieved their next round valuation milestones or they've run out of runway or whatever it is. Um, or that the, the vertical that they're in has shifted and, you know, the, the, the environment is not the same for their company. When companies get into these kind of stressed situations or distressed situations, I can tell you from a lot of data points, the difference between a functional board and a dysfunctional board is literally the difference between death and survival. And so you know, for those of you in the room who are founders and who are thinking about your corporate governance and thinking about what you do as the company matures and you raise capital, yes, having your investors sitting on the board and represented on the board is important they're going to insist on it but you have a you have a responsibility as well as a founder to think about what's in the best interest of your company and negotiate hard with your investors because you need somebody on the board who's a domain expert and when you're entering into potentially difficult times you may even want to swap out a board member for somebody who is you know seasoned and has been through a down cycle or a recession or the type of challenge that your company is facing, actually go out and find somebody who's faced whatever challenges you're facing before and see if you can bring, to, bring them into your board. I don't know whether you guys have any kind of comments on that or uh, disagree.
0: I mean, maybe just one thing it, it's about kind of the mentality of, of the board and your shareholders, because the word self interest or anybody acting in self-interest at any stage of a company will automatically create conflict and it'll automatically lead to to, to an inefficient situation. So the whole idea is whether you're doing great or you're struggling to survive, if everybody comes together and thinks, okay, venture typically takes 10 years, this is not something where I can act in self-interest today, can exit quickly with that and then you guys, I mean, I'll just leave you guys to hang. This it doesn't work this way. You can't be short. You can't think short term. You can't think quick win. And I'll leave. You can't think in self interest. What's good for you as an investor is what's good for the company. Is what's good for the founder. So when you're aligned, and when you're long, when you're thinking long term, I think for me that's a core recipe of at least building a good fundamental base that can set you up for success.
1: It's a great point.
2: And I think for the really critical decisions, you, you have to remember, I mean, you can structure it in a way that you were talking about the other day with the veto rights and reserved matters and things like that. I don't want to get too technical, but the idea is that if you come to those really, really critical decisions and you don't feel that there's going to be an alignment, you can try and even sort of um, make that alignment happen by saying, okay, these just critical decisions have to be by anonymous decision, for example, and put that in a shareholder reserve matter instead of, for example, a board. If you really think that's going to make the difference between the death or survival of a company. So I think there's a lot of technical things. I can see that time's up. I'm trying to fit more in than I can. Um, but yeah, there are different things and I guess sensitive conversations that need to be had at some point. But um, like what you were saying, you know, at that point, we think of changing boards it could also be hey let's negotiate that these decisions at these critical times are not going to happen by just the board but it's going to be a by a collective um and then work out how that is obviously with the different structures and frameworks we put in place legally but yeah
1: thank you very much Soraya no uh, we've worries. got a red light telling us that we've got to we stop now about. so thank you very much GV thank you Rayan thanks Rowan thank uh, you, thank you much, Soraya thanks. Thanks, everybody. I hope that was valuable and interesting. You Thank
0: you for tuning in. We hope you enjoyed the episode. You can find our content on Anagami, Spotify and Apple Podcast. Follow us on social media at Step Conference and let's stay in touch.